previously in Dark Places. The glowing red eyes, and there was no moon, there was no other light source. It was producing its own light. Do you live at 659 feet up on the Appalachian Mountains? This is in dark places. Playing around with catchphrases. My next step is going to be to play around with cool little trademark voices. We used to have a radio station up in Huntington, West Virginia called X106.3. The X. <laughs> it was original. But. Yeah, they kind of went bankrupt. They would have big festivals every summer and bring up big top-notch bands. And turns out they couldn't afford all of those bands and they ended up going bankrupt. And now the modern rock station, known as the X, is now playing like classic rock and stuff. Which, you know, is still good. But there was a guy on X106.3. I don't know whatever happened to him, but I used to listen to him whenever I was going to college up in Huntington. And his name was Eric. I think Eric Rains maybe was his last name. I don't know. But he would always refer to himself as Eric on the X because X106.3. And he had the weirdest voice ever. He would come on and say, Hey, this is Eric on the X. Coming up this hour, we've got a nonstop block of rock. I always wonder about those radio guys when they go through like a drive through in their normal everyday life do they use that voice Eric goes to the Taco Bell and he says yeah I'd like a Nacho Supreme with a Baja Blast please <laughs> it's probably like that and you know that's my next move I want to have a cool voice like Eric on the X anyway thanks again to our participants in Cryptid Binge Thomas and Keith at the Northern Kentucky Bigfoot Research Group. It was a three-week series of cool cryptid stories and Bigfoot and all those cool guys. And thanks again, Thomas and Keith. And we got lots of cool goodies in store for you this week. But first, here's what's going on in the news this week. A supermassive black hole shot a jet at the speed of light toward Earth by Tony Ho-Tran. <laughs> Thanks, Tony Ho. Somewhere right now in the infinite span of our universe, a star is approaching the gaping maw of a black hole. Once it gets close enough, it'll start to get pulled apart in a process delightfully dubbed spaghettification resulting in a massive jet of energy that can potentially be detected from Earth. This phenomenon is known as a tidal disruption event. It's rare, but if astronomers spot one, it gives them the chance to observe a black hole eating celestial objects in action. That's exactly what happened when an international team of astronomers witnessed the most distant TDE in recorded history. In a paper published on November 30th in the journals 
nature and nature astronomy. I wonder if they're related. The researchers reported detecting a supermassive black hole swallowing a star roughly 12.4 billion light years away in an event dubbed AT2022CMC. Love those titles they use. The TDE unleashed a jet of energy that was so bright and massive that it was observable using optical telescopes. The study's authors now say that the event gave them insights into how supermassive black holes form and also into what our universe looked like when it was young. The luminous light of material was launched almost at the speed of light and the jet was pointing in our direction said Egon Andreioni, an astronomer at the University of Maryland and co-leader of the Nature Paper, said to the Daily Beast, This is an extremely rare phenomenon, and it is even rarer that it can be observed at all because the jet is culminated, which means that we can observe it only if we are very close to the direction in which it is pointing. Andriani adds that the light from the event traveled through the cosmos for roughly 8.5 billion years before it reached us. That means it occurred when the universe was just a third of its current age. This just highlights how bright AT2022CMC was when it occurred. While astronomers aren't completely certain, the study's authors surmised that it was due to how the black hole was moving at the time it swallowed the star. We argue that the black hole was likely spinning fast, which might have an important role for these powerful jets to be launched, said Andriani. We also have concluded that the black hole, despite being supermassive, is not more massive than most black holes at the center of galaxies. Only a few hundreds of millions of times the mass of our sun. The researchers now plan to build off the research using newer telescopes, including the upcoming Vera C. Rubin Observatory being built in Chile. Once completed, it'll be able to view the entire observable sky every few nights. Andriani hopes the new observatory will be able to unveil a whole population of jetted TDEs using optical telescopes. Unveiling a population of such rare transients means that we can greatly improve our understanding of the violent universe, he said. Deer breaks into home after mistaking reindeer decoration for possible mate by Megan Marshall. Thanks, Megan. This story comes to you from West Alice, Wisconsin. A Wisconsin couple had quite a scare when an unusual intruder broke into their home and couldn't leave. If you tell anybody, nobody can believe that a full-grown deer is trapped upstairs in your house and can't find his way out. Sue Subjecti said. About a week ago, the Subjecti family had an uninvited guest. A full-grown buck ran through their front door and into their living room. I didn't realize it was a deer until it came out of the living room, said Richard Subjecty. It didn't go through the door where it could have gotten out. Instead, it ran right past me and up the steps. The Subjectys 
so the deer got scared and trapped itself upstairs while trying to get out. He was bleeding from his mouth and his leg, and he looked through every window, said Sue Subjecty. Sue Subjecty said the deer tore apart their house while trapped, breaking glass and bleeding all over their possessions. It even managed to poke holes in their ceiling with its antlers. He was just trying to find a way out, she said. But the deer couldn't find a way out and remained trapped upstairs for nearly three hours, going from room to room. It wasn't until their son and the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources showed up that they got the deer to calm down. The Department of Natural Resources, Warden Eric Anderson, I wonder if it was Eric on the X. Oh, yeah, Anderson. Couldn't believe what he saw when he responded to the scene. With the help of other officers, we were able to scare it out of the room it was trapped into. And because we had all the other doors closed off, we were able to direct it back down the stairs and back out the front door, Anderson said. The couple is extremely thankful for the DNR's help. I just appreciate the DNR people. We couldn't have done it, said Sue Subjecty. While it's unclear what made the deer break into their home, the DNR said that the Christmas reindeer outside may have looked like a nice mate for the buck. The Subjectys tend to agree. This is Dasher and Prancher, said Sue, pointing out their reindeer decorations. And Prancher... Had an unwelcome suitor. <laughs> you know, because she made a funny. At the end of the day, the family is happy no one got hurt, and the deer made it back out into its own home after a brief stay at theirs. How about the Nicholas Cage? Meltdown of the Week. Vehicle. Hey, truck! You better look for someone else to mess with, because I did nothing! Put your hands behind you! Get out of the back of the chimney, huh? No. You're gonna shoot me? No. You can do it. This episode of In Dark Places is sponsored in part by HP Printers. Thanks, HP. can send photos straight to your printer from any mobile device. Okay, now let someone dance, Susan. Introducing the new web-connected printers with ePrint from HP. I talk about our little UFO group, the Appalachian UFO Research Society, on the show quite often. Back in 2016, I interviewed a UFO witness. And I guess I was kind of always planning on having a podcast and playing the interview on the podcast one day because I held on to it for all these years. Back on June 18th, 2016, I talked to a UFO witness 
who we'll call Saint Nick since it's close to Christmas. I don't always make it a habit to record my UFO witnesses when talking to them, but I did on this particular day. So I thought maybe we would play my interview with good old Saint Nick. And here it is. I was living out around Fort Chiswell and uh, I got up early one morning and there was like a fog about 50 feet above the ground up in the mountains. And I got up early and looked out of my window and there's a cabin sits right from me for about 200 yards. And I looked over there and I saw these different color lights up in the fog. And they seemed pretty big. I mean, I guess the fog magnifies it, but they were like blue and I mean, uh, red and green. And it seemed to be maybe four or five of them just sitting above this man's cabin in the fog. And I'm thinking, that sure is unusual. It wasn't moving, it was just hanging there. So I'm watching them, and I probably should have gotten my movie camera. And I see, the ma I see a flashlight shining up into the fog. Well, the man had, must have come out of his house and seen it and shines his flashlight up in the fog, see? Well, I never talked to him about it because he was kind of unsociable. And then the first one I ever saw was around Richmond, Virginia. It was about 1966. 66 or 67. I was walking with my girlfriend and some people came running across the street down there and they said there's some people on the porch they said y'all come out here and look at this thing everybody in the theater is out looking at it so they got out in the middle of the street we went out in the middle of the street with them and we looked up and there was this bright orange light beneath the clouds clouds are pretty high but you could see it good and the thing was wavering back and forth just sitting there left to right, kind of rocking back and forth. And all of a sudden the thing changed colors and got to a dark mauve color, like a maroon looking color. And it started falling like a playing card would fall through the sky. And when it was falling, it turned orange again. Like the engine said, cut back on or something like that, you know, is the way I took it. And shot straight up through the clouds. We watched that thing for about a good 30 seconds. When was that? That was about 1966. Oh. Another time I was young, I was about 15 years old, and I was getting a ride to the fairgrounds. My stepmother was giving me a ride, and we saw this thing hovering over the ground. And I thought it was one of these advertising signs with a lot of lights on it, you know, just on a balloon or But the thing was sitting still, and the lights were going around in circles. And if I remember correctly, the lights were all kind of a white color lights. Must have been, I don't know, 30 or 40 lights around this thing, going zipping around. And uh, finally we drove past it, you know. And I know it wasn't a plane, I know it wasn't a balloon, it wasn't no advertising thing. It was. And then later on I read a UFO report about the police chasing an object about the same time into the next county. So I kind of put two to two together. Yeah. And then about 2013 maybe, 
I was camped out in the George Washington National Forest close to Waynesboro. And I, I hear something and look up between the trees in about just above treetop level, about, I guess, 40, 50 feet above the trees, came this white thing. It was like a fireball. I've seen lightning fireballs like that before, but this was a clear night. And the thing was parallel to the ground. It wasn't coming down at an angle. And behind it, it had a trail that came to a point. Like some kind of jet trail or something. Yeah, they come to a point yeah. rather than be long and stretched out. And the thing came, it was just. And I see go by the trees and I said, this thing's going to crash somewhere. So I stopped breathing so I could listen put my hand up to my ear and I never heard that thing hit the ground and if it had hit that ground in that valley I know I'd have heard it. Yeah. That thing never hit the ground. And it looked like to be about the size of a Volkswagen, that fireball, but like that. And, uh, let's see, if you got any questions, it might bring to light something that I forgot to tell you. That one was uh pretty close to the ground then? Yeah, it was about maybe 50 feet above treetops. Huh. And I was in kind of a, I was in the mountains, but I was in kind of a mountain valley. And it was going down through the valley, but it was perfectly parallel to the ground. It didn't come out of the sky at an angle if it was something that came out of the sky. And it was close enough to the ground if it was coming to an angle, I would have heard that thing hit the ground. And it was big enough to where it wasn't a shooting star because that thing would have burnt out. But this thing was so big it couldn't have burnt out before it hit the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I was baffled by it. But I really didn't have a chance to throw the camera up on it anyway because it went by so fast, you know. Yeah, everybody, uh, every time I've seen anything, they'll always say, why didn't you take pictures? But it usually never lasts that long. Just, uh, well, when I see a Bigfoot, the first thing I go is, wow, you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know, and you're afraid to move because you think he's going to see you, and then you go, oh, the camera, you know, and by the time you get the camera, yeah. out, you can't, you know, it's gone then, you know. Are you uh, familiar with Stan Gordon from Pennsylvania, UFO man? Stan, I've heard the name, but, you know, I, I don't, I try to stay under the radar a lot, you know, because... I don't want people calling me because most of the time I'm out of phone range anyway. And when you get around that Green Bank Observatory up there in West Virginia, you know where that is, right? Yeah. Yeah, that National Observatory astronomy yeah. thing. You can't even have phone, you can't get phone service within a 25 mile radius. And a friend of mine had just pulled up that used to work for swans up there that does, you know, the trucks that sells meat and stuff. Yeah. His customers told him that they weren't even allowed to have a microwave within two miles of that place. I reckon. So it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to get a lot of calls or get on a computer. And I'm so old school anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah. I get around stuff like that and it just baffles me to the point where I have to get up and walk away, you know. I tried to call you a couple times and it just kept ringing. I figured you were probably out of reach somewhere. It could have been. And, you know, these 
you can talk to the moon, but you can't talk to your neighbors, you know. I don't know what's <laughs> up with that. You know, they ought to at least have it so you can call 911 no matter where you're at. You yeah. Know? Shoot, so how long you been doing this UFO thing? I seen my first one back in uh, 92. I've been after them ever since. <laughs> yeah, once you see something, you know, and you know it's real. Yeah. That just kind of kicks you in the butt and makes you <laughs> dig in a little deeper. With this Bigfoot thing, I'm into it real deep. I'm into paleoanthropology and paleoclimatology and primatology and plate tectonics. And yeah. All kind of climate change stuff. Ape evolution and how climate change pushed them, you know. How they moved them around and it caused land bridges that helped them move. And I'm just into a lot of ancient apes because that's what it is. You know, people think it's some something that came out of a dimensional portal or that's what, uh, a shapeshifter. That's why I was going to say about Stan Gordon. That's what he thinks. He, they're in the UFOs. They're they not. Come down. <laughs> you know, people think all this stuff, you know, and it's not a government experiment going awry. What it is, Junebug, is it's real simple. It's an Asian ape. And when that Mongolian tribe crossed over that Bering Strait land bridge, they say now 40 or 41,000 years ago, originally they said 12,000 to 13,000 years ago. But new discoveries in Central and South America show that the Indians had been here longer than that. These Mongolians came across that land bridge and started the Indian, the Amerindians over here. And when those Mongolians came over, there's a whole lot of animals that came over with them that weren't indigenous to North America. We didn't used to have bison and muskox and wolves and the black bear and the brown bear and the polar bear and the pronghorns and the mountain sheep, you know? in the Wapiti. Uh, we didn't used to have those animals over here. So when that land bridge formed, and those Mongolians, which we call the Clovis people, you know, came over, them animals came with them. And another animal that came with them was a big Asian ape. So we got an unclassified North American ape running around out here that's been here for like 40,000 years. And my goal is to oh, awesome. roam these mountains until I can't do it anymore, looking for a dead one underneath a tree or in a cave or in a rock slide or something, dead. And I want to be able to classify this unclassified North American ape. It's an ape. Everyone I saw looked like an ape. Everybody I talked to said they looked like an ape. And when you go through, when you study apes, you find out that all of the stuff they do, this nest building, gorillas building a nest every day on the ground. But they also do orangutan stuff. Because the orangutan is the only solitary great ape. So most of these Bigfoot sightings, almost all of them are of one animal which throws it over to the orangutan. But then again, they build nests like a gorilla on the ground, like a terrestrial, not an arboreal. And these long calls they make, that's an orangutan thing. 
with these aggressive growls and stuff is a gorilla thing. So it seems to me that it's a, it's a mixed match of one of these black African apes and a red Asian ape. Because you see them in black and red. I've yeah. seen them both in black and red. I've seen two red ones and three black ones. So you, you plainly see a mix here of, of this dryopithecine version of an Asian ape which had what they call proconsuls which is a black, which they were responsible later on for the gorilla and the chimpanzee. So you got these black apes that came out of Africa and got into Europe and Asia and then you got these red apes that came out of Africa and they all ended up in Southeast Asia. If you look at that map right there, that map right there took me eight months to make and it's something new for this year. I've traced all the ancient apes through ape evolution in the different species to where the fossils were dug up, what the fossils were dated at, different locations, and you can trace them how they went into, into Asia, Southeast Asia. And most all of these species of hominids and great apes and all ended up in Southeast Asia. It's like, and five of them lived between four and five million years ago together in the same jungle. So that's that's where I'm at with Bigfoot's a gene deviation version of an Asian ape that crossed over with the Mongolians and the other big animals. It's not some spaceship thing. I'm telling you, it's an animal. He had a story of. Uh, this woman, I think it's somewhere in Pennsylvania, she came out, she heard her dogs barking and stuff one night. She went out and there's one in her garbage. Oh yeah. She hollered at her old man, he came out and shot it. And he said it had something in his hand. The Bigfoot had something in his hand and right whenever he shot it, it like pushed that button and just disappeared. Uh, no, I can't go for that. Hey, and there you go, a little bonus Bigfoot story. So, cryptid binge continues. And what about that bluegrass music? There you go. Another little treat. Pretty sure Saint Nick will never listen to this show, but in case he ever does one day and he recognizes his voice, then thank you, Saint Nick, for letting me interview you. Hey, you know what? It's been a while since we've opened up the old mailbag. Let's take a look at our mail for this week. This letter was sent in by David Zang. Thanks, David. David says, let's discuss. And that's all he says. So if you're out there, David, thanks for your letter. And we will definitely discuss. This letter was sent in by Louise Abel. Louise says, How is your day? I will be very happy if you write me back. Please do not ignore this email. Try to answer. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Louise. Glad you took the time to send that in to us. And we will answer your letter right now. Uh, yeah. Here's the answer. If you've got a story you'd like to send in or a question, 
just like David and Louise, you can send it to indarkplacespod at hotmail.com. Thanks again to David and Louise. We appreciate you guys. How about one more story? I've got this little arcade one-up Pac-Man arcade game. I always loved Pac-Man. Ever since I was a kid, it was always my favorite. And when Arcade One-Up came up with these little miniature arcade things a few years ago, I had to jump on that. And I'd love to have some more of them, but they're kind of expensive. But you know, any kind of Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man and stuff. Jimmy said that his favorite is Miss Pac-Man. And I love Miss Pac-Man too. I just have them all whistled to me. Back in 1982, there was a baby Pac-Man that was like a video game pinball machine hybrid. And that was big fun. I'd like to have that one too. So we were talking about these arcade games and how fun they are and everything. So I started thinking, I wonder if there's a haunted arcade game. There's an urban legend that says that back in 1981, there was an unheard of arcade game company that kind of popped up in Portland, Oregon called Cineslotion. Kind of sounds German. I don't know how it ended up in Portland, Oregon. But, you know, back then arcade games were kind of uncommon and these independent game companies would just pop up out of nowhere and do little trial runs and hope for big Pac-Man success. Cineslotion supposedly released a game called Polybius which appears to be named after a Greek historian born in Arcadia. This urban legend says that Polybius was popular to the point of addiction, with lines forming around the machines and often resulting in fights over who would play next. I remember those days. Mean kids coming and putting their hands over my eyes while I tried to play. Yeah, that was fun. And, oh yeah, there's this one time a guy actually bit me. I was playing the original Mario Brothers and I guess he wanted to play and I was taking up his time or something, I don't know. He came over and bit my left arm and he was like a snapping turtle. He wouldn't let go either. But yeah, <laughs> Polybius. These machines were supposedly visited by the men in black who collected unknown data from the machines, alleging that they were testing responses to the game's psychoactive effects. Players supposedly suffered from a series of unpleasant side effects, including seizures, amnesia, insomnia, night terrors, and hallucinations. Approximately one month after its supposed release in 1981, Polybius is said to have disappeared without a trace. This company, Cineslotion, is supposedly German for deleting your senses. So, good people. It's kind of unsure if the game actually existed or not, but there does seem to be copyrights that mention the name Polybius and a copyright date of 1981. Yeah, I love those old arcade games. They're a lot of fun. I like those a lot better than the modern games for some reason. Modern games look ten times better, but, like, I don't know. They're not as fun. I don't think I'll play Polybius, though. I don't want to see that one. And that's about all the big show for this week. Thanks for listening. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.